Hello, I'm Simit Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. It's been a tricky old week, hasn't it? Lots going on. Uh, heat waves have gone and flown, although we had a little resurgence uh, just over the weekend. We've had uh, people fainting during the uh, leadership, Tory leadership hustings, although it wasn't uh, either of the candidates. Uh, lots more on that a little later. Also, uh, plenty of big stuff going on in terms of the energy crisis. But I want to get straight into today's podcast, which is a really interesting one about net zero and perhaps unintended consequences. So the CPRE, which is, that used to be, I think it's called the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England. It's changed its name slightly now. That basically looks at the land that we have in England specifically, and in other bodies around the UK, and manages how we use that land, particularly farming land. And it said that actually a staggering amount of land is now being built on, which we've kind of known, 300,000 homes have been built on prime farmland. But an extra 1,400 hectares has been used for green energy projects. So they reckon that now this amount of land is going to increase and could become a problem because the farmland that produces something like, you know, 3% of energy that's being used now could actually produce something like 10% of our food crops. And with what's happening right now in the world in terms of supply, could this be a problem we're making? Even though we have the good idea of going green, are we actually going green in the wrong place? So I called up with Philippa Oppenheimer, who's the land use officer for the CPRE, to discuss this very topic. Now, a story you may have seen on Future Net Zero, uh, a story that I, I was quite surprised at, and it's a study, a bit of research by uh, CPRE, basically a countryside body really they're looking at the protection of england it, was, it used to be called uh, their official name but we'll we'll get the full uh, explanation in a moment but they've just done a, a look at this conundrum we want to go net zero we want to go greener and we want to have much more renewable energy but could that be at the cost of farmland actual farmland we need for growing crops because obviously all the things that are happening right now globally in terms of the pressures on food chains and food supply but also looking forward to what's going to happen if we have more climate change like the record-breaking temperatures we had last week so are we making a mistake should we be keeping some of this land sacrosanct not building on it it's that classic thing of kind of you know development brownfield greenfield we'll look at that a bit of that but also i'm very interested in whether we should be using farmland for renewable energy joining me is philippa oppenheimer who is the land use officer at the cpre thank you very much philippa for joining us on the net hero podcast thank you for having me um explain what the cpre i used didn't it used to be called the, something like protection of rural england the consortium or something what's the actual name yeah so we used to be known as the campaign to protect rural england yeah but we've recently sort of had a rebranding and we're now known as cpre the countryside charity to sort of we want people to understand more about our sort of countryside focus 
as a whole rather than just the protection side of it. Is it just England you cover or have you now become UK wide? Yeah, we do just cover England, yeah. Right. And just finally, for people to understand, I mean, who, who is... Uh, who are members of this chat, who, who are part of it, who runs it? Are you all sort of based on farmers or is it kind of royal protected lands, agricultural bodies? Who make up the members or the people who run CPRE? So we are a membership charity, so uh, members of the public can become members, but we're also a federal charity. So uh, we have a national office, which is based in London, which is mostly government facing and deals with sort of national issues, national policy. But we've also got regional groups throughout the country. So we've got 42 of those groups, one in each county, and they all deal with their own sort of local issues. So they work with their local authorities and members of the public within their areas to sort of tackle things that are going on in the ground there. Sort yeah. of in, in their local area and then they'll feed back to us as well they're they're really valuable because we learn so much about what's happening on the ground from them and then we try and make change through national policy to help them further down the line how long has it been going just just to give us a, a background because I've, I've heard of it i remember i think it's probably going since what the 80s 70s so we've been around for a long time now actually but we've had a few different names so i think uh yeah yeah so i think we started off as the as the council for rural protection and then um yeah through the years we've had a few several different names but we were a charity given charity status in 1926 so we're coming up yeah yeah we're coming up to our uh centenary in a few years yeah it's just quite exciting is it basically before we talk about this report, what do you want as a group? Do you just want to say protect all green land? Not strictly. So what we really want to see is the finite land that we have being used as efficiently as possible. So in terms of this report and the other work that we do as well, ideally the things that we'd like to see are comprehensive land use strategies becoming a big part of national policy Um, So, you know, actually ensuring that we are building what we need, where we actually need it, and understanding the actual land that we're building things on top of as well. So you're you're not not per se against all development? No, no, not at all. We just want to ensure that the right development is in the right place. And we want, you know, a more strategic approach to how we use our land. Because you could be accused of, you know, NIMBY, not in my my backyard. I don't want to, I want the power, but I don't want anything... On my lawn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what it is that we really, really strive for is a sort of a very democratic approach to the planning system. Right. So, um, yeah, we in our current campaigning, we're ensuring that local people maintain their voice within the planning system so that Um, anything that happens in a local area has the backing of the community. Yeah, I get what you're saying. So you don't you, you don't want government to just say, right, well, we'll green light this building project without thinking what people in the area that this will happen and what it might mean in terms of the habitat as well. Exactly. The people on the ground, the communities are the ones that know their area the best. Uh, development projects always go through much quicker when they've got the community support as well. So, you know, what better place to sort of start with, you know, ensuring that your project has support than, you know, starting with the people and planning things with them and yeah. just having tr- true engagement with the communities. My last question before we talk about the report 
Um, what's your relationship with things like the Environment Agency, for example? Do you sort of work with them? Are you sort of reporting, uh, you know, if they make a plan, do you, are you sort of called in to say, well, actually, we don't agree with this? Or how, how, does, how does that work? So as a national charity, we use evidence that the uh, Environment Agency produce. So often we use data that they provide but in terms of chatting with them that would probably be our local groups who are doing a bit more of the work on the on the ground that would be sort of interact with them a bit more but yeah from a national perspective yeah we will sort of give our ideas of what we how we'd like to see things performing better so let's talk about this report so you've you've done a report where you looked at basically I mean, I don't know if this headline's right, but farmland capable of going 250,000 tonnes of vegetable could be wiped out, right? By new, and that sounds quite scary, right? So you've looked at, I think you've done a study uh, about this agricultural land, and you, you call it something quite interesting, BMV land. So can you just explain what you're talking about first, what this BMV land is, and then where has this land gone? What is it being used for? Uh, and we'll, we'll explore that in a bit more detail. So what sort of land, what, what does BMV mean? So BMV land stands for our best and most versatile agricultural land. That basically means that this is our top productive, our most high yielding areas of agricultural land. And to be classified as BMV, a survey will have had to have taken place and by Natural England who map where BMV land is. And you'd have to be classified as either grade one, grade two, or grade three A piece of land. That's what's considered BMV. So grade one, that's excellent quality agricultural land, which has basically no limitations to what can be grown there. Right. And produces high yields. And then grade two, again, very minor limitations about of crop yields, um, what can be grown, but just not quite as good as grade one. And then grade 3A, good again, but, you know, slightly more limitations than grade two or one. But yeah, still pretty good. Um, and what sort of crops are we talking about? I mean, you know, we're talking about fruits, vegetables, we're we talking about kind of oil seed, right? What, what is it? What's the sort of stuff that we're looking at? Or is it, does it verse on them? This is the land you can grow anything on pretty much. Yeah, well, grade one, because it's so good and can produce so much, generally the things that are grown on that are things like apples and pears, salad crops, soft fruit and winter vegetables. And then that works down to grade 3A, which is generally for cereals, things like sugar beet and potatoes. There are sort of categories within each of making the most efficient vegetables for that piece of land. Where is this land in England? Is it all over the place or is it, are there certain areas just because the weather's better or there's more, I don't know, more rain or whatever? So it is sort of all over, but we've got particular concentrations in the east of England, the West Midlands and the north west of England. Quite a bit in the southeast too. And for it to be classified as BMV, what happens is the land is assessed and things that are, you know, looked at are things like the climate of the area, the aspect. So, you know, how easily a piece of land might be able to be uh, harvested. Gradient is included in that, as well as the soil chemistry. So, you know, there's quite a few different elements that go into determining how 
good a piece of agricultural land is for food production. So this this land that you've looked at, uh, let's go through what your report has has been about. So first of all, why did you do it and what did you look at? The BMV classification came about after the Second World War and it was a push in response to the demand for self-sufficiency. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So ensuring that we can feed the nation and, you know, we have these pieces of land, they produce a lot of food, but increasingly we're hearing about more and more development happening on it. Yeah. Um, So, you know, housing, infrastructure, you know, renewable energy projects. But, you know, the capacity for this land to produce food, you know, is massive. In a time when we might be finding ourselves with our food security at risk, we might not be able to rely on imports as much as we have done. You know, global disruption might impact that. Of course, yeah. Yeah, you know, we're sort of thinking, hang on a minute, we need to really understand what is happening to this land, where it's going, how well policy is working to protect it. So that's what we wanted to undertake, really, was just to understand what exactly was happening with this land. Sorry to interrupt, but was this as a kind of consequence of what's happened with the Russia-Ukraine thing and how that's affected? Or, Or did you always plan to do this survey? was something that we wanted to look at for a while because, as I said, from our local groups, we have heard that it is an issue, um, you know, that in BMV land wasn't being taken too seriously in terms of, like, planning decisions. Um, you know, the policy wasn't really standing up enough to protect the land. I think we sort of really thought, you know, we need to look into this, uh, obviously off the back of recent events. It's only going to become more important that we understand what's going on. What did you find? Well, we found that since 2010, we've lost, as you mentioned earlier, enough land, enough farmland capable of feeding 2 million people their five a day um, every year. And that's the equivalent to the combined populations of Liverpool, Sheffield and Manchester. So, you know, this is a lot. That's a that's a big quantity of food that we're talking about. About 8000 hectares, which is around was it 60%, 60% of the development that's happened on BMV land has been for housing projects. And then we found a further 1,400 hectares have been taken out of agricultural production for new, renewable energy projects. This is really interesting because, I mean, what you've said there, that, that you know, feeding cities worth of people, that, that just seems staggering. We all know the the argument about housing that's been going on for decades, you know, and Greenbelt and Brownfield. Are you surprised? Were you surprised that this much sort of prime land has gone to housing, despite all the publicity around this sort of stuff? CPRE for many years has been doing a lot of investigation into where development is ending up, and a lot of the time we do see. Greenfield land, other designated land being used for housing. So I wouldn't say it came as too much of a surprise, unfortunately. But, you know, we're going to take this opportunity to sort of raise the issue that we found um, and hopefully do something about it because this land is just so valuable and it's going to become more valuable given climate changes that we're facing as well. Another big result that we found from our report was that 60% of our grade one, so that's our absolute excellent quality agricultural land, is actually within flood zone three. 
which is uh, the Environment Agency's highest ranking of flood risk. So, you know, we're going to lose even more of this land over the coming years, no matter how we plan for it, no matter how we use it. Climate change is going to take more of it away from us anyway. So by building more houses, we're just, we're just being more, more, more stupid around this whole uh, resource issue. Exactly. So needing a strategic approach to how we use our lands, we can balance needs for farming, housing, energy on our finite lands. We can also meet, you know, our net zero ambitions. But, you know, we, we need to be really clever about how we're using our lands. You know, it can't be ad hoc, put that there, not really think about the, the impacts it might be having elsewhere. We need a proper strategy. We need, you know, something that's just really going to increase the the efficiency of how we're using, obviously, the finite land that we have in the country. Let's talk specifically about renewable energy. Now, obviously, you can't help but notice if you drive or get the train, you'll see wind turbines. Some moment you leave sort of, you know, big cities on the farmland, you can see uh, solar panel farms, you know. And everyone kind of thinks, I, I would think this is all good stuff. The farmer makes money, there's renewable energy being done. And I kind of normally would have figured it's it's on sort of cruddy land they don't really care about. But there's even been stories we've covered here on the podcast about good growth happening underneath solar panels because it's like nice microclimates. So, so what have you found about renewable energy and why were you concerned about it? So, I mean, one of the good results that we found from the report was that barely any of our current solar capacity, so less than 3%, has actually been installed on our best farmland, this BMV land. That's a good thing, that, that we wouldn't be that stupid. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that, you know, we were quite pleased to see that, you know, this BMV land, as far as we could identify, seems to have been avoided um, by solar. So that brought us to the conclusion that it's entirely possible for the government to balance food and energy security. But, you know, again, we need a bit of a different focus. So particularly if things like rooftop solar and offshore wind are prioritised, we don't need BMV land for our energy needs. But wouldn't the argument be the government is, is, is looking at it needs, yes, absolutely wants to do more offshore, but it does need onshore wind. And, you know, we've got this big government uh, reshuffle soon to happen in September. Who knows when the new leader of the party takes place and what they will decide. But they've both committed, Rishi Sunak and, and Liz Trust to carrying on the net zero pledge. And they want to do more wind. And a lot of people say we need to do more onshore wind. And we also do to do more solar. You can't get away from the fact, Philip, that a lot of that needs to be built near the cities that need them. And that might be on the, these lands. So how do you answer that, that call? Do you, are you saying the government needs to just make a decision that it has to prioritise the food uh, producing lands, even if their renewable energy potentially is, is good? Yeah, so I, I think the thing that we must remember is that agriculture and diet, how we approach both of those things are going to be massive contributors to you know, our carbon outputs as well. So if we lose more of our BMV land, that's possibly going to require us to have more imports of food, you know, or imports that in the future possibly are going to be harder to get. But we, we could be getting cleaner power, though, because that would be the argument, wouldn't it? 
yeah, you can absolutely. be using that to generate energy and then you've got that energy and you've got cleaner energy you can use around and you know that especially with what's going on yeah but the point we're trying to make is that we don't need to be using this highly productive land to produce that energy again it's coming back to the but what if yeah. that's sorry to sorry to butt in, but what if that's where the wind blows well or the sun shines the most? People the develop you know, the pressure is on from the government saying, let's do it. How would you how would you reply to that? Well, I guess we would reply and say that if there is going to be a push for big onshore winds, then it needs to be absolutely led by the communities that are going to be, you know, living under those wind farms. Um, you know, CPRE has been undertaking a big project for a number of years um, about community energy visioning, which is about how best to work with communities when deciding where renewable energy projects should go. Um, but, you know, in terms of BMV land, you know, we, we did find that so little of our solar capacity is on BMV. Um, and, you know, as I've mentioned already, there's so much potential for rooftop solar there's enough south-facing roofs throughout the country for, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, solar to be placed on warehouses, houses, car parks even. So we need different thinking. That's what you're trying to say. Because it, it is easy just to find a bit of land, shove a few solar panels on it, and away you go, you've got a solar farm. Whereas, obviously, putting it on rooftops is a bit more tricky in cities, and there's more issues there. You're, you're saying as, as a group that, that that's the direction we need to look at because of our food security concerns. Absolutely. And, you know, as you point towards, it is a tapestry. You know, we're going to have to really knuckle down and um, really think about the strategy of how we're going to use our land. You know, how are we going to ensure that we are placing the houses we need in the right places? You know, producing the energy that we need, as well as producing the food that we need as well. So... BMV land definitely is not the place to be doing anything else other than producing food. You know, if we produce food in any, if we cover this land, destroy this land, it is not BMV anymore and it probably won't be BMV land again. So, you know, we just really need the policies that are going to be solid and actually protect this land and allow it to provide for the populations which it's near. What do you want to do with this report? Where have you taken it? Have you taken it to government? Are you are you trying to use your local groups to say, right, the next time there's a planning application in their area to, to take this out? What, what do you want to do with it? Well, I guess the main objective was to raise awareness of the issue. And, yeah, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast today. So this, that's a no, it's my pleasure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, yep, so it's something that we're going to be talking to the government about. We are hoping to influence the view of national planning policies, which is coming up over the next year or so. You know, so we're going to be pushing for a firm presumption against building on this best agricultural land within planning policy, you know, strengthen what we've got already, um, which unfortunately doesn't seem to be working. And we're also going to be pushing for a comprehensive cross-departmental land use strategy so that we can ensure that, you know, the right things are going in the right places and we are using our finite land in the most efficient way possible. We're going to face more of this, aren't we? The challenge between uh, ever-growing population, not just in this country, but obviously, I mean, you, you guys uh, cover England, but, you know, globally we're going to have this. More need for energy cleaner energy, more need for food, 
growing populations. Um, we're a fairly small island, but we're very lucky because we're a very wealthy island. What are your hopes and aspirations for how we reach this balance? What, what, what will you be asking for over the coming years? As I've just mentioned, so our planning policies, they need to become more efficient. They need to become more considered and strategic. We need to ensure that we're balancing our demands for farming, housing and energy. We have a housing crisis as well as a climate and nature crisis. You know, we need to be providing affordable housing um, as well as looking after our environment. So, you know, we just really like to see a push in the right direction of tackling, you know, these, these huge um, social and environmental issues that we're facing. And, you know, as I say, a really comprehensive way of doing that is, you know, just being more strategic, using what we have in the best way. And being, you know, aware of the fact that the climate is changing as well, and we need to take that into account. And I guess one thing that we'd really like to see is the government taking a bit more sort of interest in what's happening to um, different types of land. Because as far as we're aware, we're the first sort of comprehensive research that's actually looked into what's happened to BMV land over the past 10 years. We've got a real problem, haven't we? Because... As we need more clean energy, we've got to be so careful, and I'm grateful for your report and your organisation's report, that we don't cause harm elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we could be using a piece of land with the absolute best intentions um, in one area and having unintended consequences in another. We need to just look at our land in such a... Yeah, and I'll say it again, <laughs> strategic way, you know, we really need a countrywide land use framework plan that's just going to really just look at everything that we've got. What have we got? You know, we've got BMV land over here, you know, let's produce food on it. You know, CPRE, we're known for our brownfield land um, research as well. You know, last year we found that there's space for 1.3 million homes on brownfield land, which is within our sort of more urban centres already. So, you know, let's build housing there, you know. That land's already been, you know, developed on. It's probably not going to be able to be productive, you know, lush green land again. So, you know, let's build our houses there. It'll be near the services that people need. It'll be near mm. where people work. And, you know... Yeah, everyone it, wants a nice lush country view, don't they? That's the trouble. <laughs> If we then plan for beautiful uh, local green spaces within our cities as well, that's also going to have brilliant carbon consequences as well. You know, you've got solar covering our houses, trees. Our temperatures are only going to get hotter. So, yeah. you know, let's green our cities as well and make them, you know, lovely places to live. While protecting our land. No, that's a fair point. Uh, my last question, What? What? obviously we're going to have a new government by, uh, well, not a new government, but a new cabinet for sure, by September, we'll have a new leader. What do you want to see from the new leader of this country in terms of what we're doing around land? You said that you want a comprehensive one. Do you want to see a body set up to say, right, we must now just absolutely plan as we head towards net zero to make sure that we're not damaging this BNB land? So, I mean, the next prime minister is going to have to take 
decisions that will shape multiple and interlinked crises, um, you know, the cost of living, climate, food, energy, housing, they're all incredibly important. So, you know, the policies that are put in place um, now by them shortly in the future will determine the success or failure of this country to tackle these crises in the coming years. This research, it looks into one really crucial part of that. Um, it is interlinked, but, you know, we just really, really need the new government to take our land seriously and just understand how important it is for all of those crises that I've just mentioned. <laughs> land use strategy, that is the only way forward. It needs to be taken seriously. You know, if we can nail that, we can nail so many of the crises that we're facing and just, just get the most out of what this country has to offer. Philippa, brilliant note to end with. Thank you very much. Brilliant stuff. And I'm really glad you came on the podcast to share the knowledge. Uh, if people want to look at it, the, the report is on our website, but also you can go to the CPRE site. Philippa, thanks for your time today. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to chat to you. Uh, Philippa Oppenheimer there. And that is a really interesting conundrum that we face, which is, you know, we want to go green, but what we do to do it. I mean, I was um, lucky enough to go on a little boat ride at the weekend and I flew past, I flew past, well, it felt like that, <laughs> uh, on the boat. We sailed past the London Array down near sort of South End, Sheerness. And it is staggering when you see it, it looks incredibly uh, impressive. But that makes you think about all the issues around building offshore wind, issues around kind of what it's doing to the seabed, what it's doing to the marine life. And so as we progress down the net zero route, uh, we do need to be aware of where we're using our resources. And as Philip said, maybe we should be building much more rooftop solar in this country, although I don't particularly think it's a big, I'm a big fan of it. But definitely there's room for much more energy efficiency. Uh, before I go, a couple of things. Uh, do make sure you're subscribing to futurenetzero.com because there's plenty of cracking news out there. And a couple of headlines that you may have uh, come across. Both candidates in the Tory party uh, election have pledged to do something about energy. Liz Truss is saying that she's going to put a moratorium on the, the Green Levy. Rishi Sunak has just announced he would ditch the 5p uh, rise on VAT. So there are some things moving there, but both of them have, have so far committed to net zero. And I really hope that doesn't change during the course of them getting into power, because whatever's happening now, we can see that we must have our energy security and independence increased. Warnings this week also uh, about possible power cuts, possibly in Germany and across Europe. They've just decided to mandatory say that 15% less gas use has to be done because of fears that Russia will just turn off the taps this winter. And that could well plunge Germany into recession. And that will have a huge effect on the economies of Southern Europe, particularly, but all of Europe. So we've got to watch out for what's happening there. The National Grid actually acted on this. And again, all these stories on Future Net Zero, where they said that they would actually pump more gas to Europe right now to stave off a European supply shortage and also to make sure that it sort of covers itself for 
what it needs for the UK. Uh, whatever happens, we're, we're heading towards a bit of a crunch uh, this winter, I think, because of the issues around Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So a lot uh, to, to look at there. Plenty of uh, innovative stories this week as well. And some quite major news on the sort of nuclear front as well, uh, with plans for Sizewell C having been approved, uh, but also EDF asking for a sort of force majeure on Hinkley Point C to push back dates on the current contract because of all the issues that have happened because of the pandemic. And look at all of those stories on Future Net Zero. And also check out uh, the carbon column this week from Ellis our uh, head of carbon partnerships, where he runs through scope three emissions. And remember, if you're trying to get your head around it, all of this information is on our 101 pages. Uh, just look for that on futurenetzero.com. But we can also help you uh, actually actively start to cut your carbon. Do get in touch with Ellis and he'll take you through our carbon AAA program. That's about it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. Please keep uh, spreading the word and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.